giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Dermot Daly, founder and CEO of Tapadoo, a mobile app development company based in Dublin, Ireland. Dermot, thanks for joining me. Hey, Chad. Great to be here. So I was curious, you have a long history as a software engineer, including companies like Oracle. Why did you decide to start your own consulting company? So I've worked in in all sorts of companies, but I've always felt over the course of my career that small companies suit me better. Mm -hmm. I used to have quite a cynical attitude towards big companies, but what I've just come to realize is people who thrive in big companies have very different uh, skill sets from me. So I guess it's all around being able to maneuver and do well in those organizations and i always found that difficult i was always a kind of very much an engineer by trade kind of thing and then deciding to get into my own consulting business well i guess i've often described this as i've often felt throughout my career that i could do a better job than my boss and at some point i was second from the top <laughs> so I, I you know i worked in a number of different companies and the the, the company before i started my own consulting business was itself a consulting business. Um, a recessionary period hit Ireland at the time, and you know we left by mutual consent on very good terms. And I kind of came to the conclusion that I hadn't really a plan in mind, but the S- the iPhone SDK had just come out, so I decided I'd give that a bit of a whirl just to see what it'd be like. Uh, and it brought me right back to my days of being a teenager programming. I just enjoyed it so much. And then I thought, you know what, there's probably a a business in this. But um, yeah, so uh, and that's why I started my own company. And that was early on with the SDK. It was the first year, right? Yeah, it was back in 2009. I think the SDK probably came out in 2008. But, you know, even the iPhone took a while to come to Ireland. It might have been on the second tranche six or eight months Mm -hmm. in or something like that. I can't really remember. But at the time, I would say there was, you know, a handful of people doing app development and such that we we found all of each other on on twitter and formed an early kind of like a i guess like a coco dev kind of uh setup yeah we call it xcake it's still running to this day actually i don't get along as much but yeah there was a handful of people knocking around and we all got to know each other and we were able to help each other out and i wrote this app that did reasonably well in the irish itunes store which was only aimed at ireland but it gave me the buzz to to keep going do you feel like being early on with iPhone development helped you be successful as a company? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, at the time, what I did is I made sure that anybody who would listen to me, I told them, I've got an iPhone app development company or I have a mobile app development company. Um, and certainly in 2009, 2010, there weren't too many of us doing that. Um, and as a result, when our you know, people who became our clients were basically out there looking for app development companies, lots of people were saying, you should turn to this guy. So we had lots of people coming to us saying, I've asked around, where can I get app development? And everybody seems to be telling me to go to you. Mm-hmm. So it worked very well at the start. <laughs> it's it's certainly not a dynamic that I don't think is still in play at the moment as such. It's a much more mature industry now. Yeah. But yeah, it certainly helped us kickstart the business and get, I guess, to get to maybe our first, say, six employees was all based on that. Mm-hmm. And how big are you now? We're 15 at the moment. Mm-hmm. And you said that you felt like you didn't thrive in a big company. 
and that you were suited, better suited to smaller companies. Does that mean that you, with Tapadu, have tried to create a small company? Um, I guess, you know, the likes of software services is is not a scalable business the way uh, product companies are scalable businesses. So you scale a services company by adding people to it, mm-hmm. which effectively adds risk. So we've grown organically, purposely. You know, so we have been larger in the past when we take on contract staff and so on in in times where uh, there's high demand and then we let them go again when demand eases off. So uh, I think it's grown at a pace that I'm comfortable and happy with, if you like. But, you know, if you take the size of Ireland as a market, Ireland has about, I guess, six or seven million people in total. It's the size of a small U.S. city, Mm -hmm. you know, so there is a kind of limit to the amount of business we will find here in Ireland. Now, we have worked with clients in, in Europe and we've worked with clients in the US, but they're obviously harder to find. You know, they don't they don't come to you out of the blue. Right. So most of your work is based in Ireland then? Most of it has been, but we've worked with everything from startups to the world's biggest brands that mm-hmm. just happen to have organizations here in Ireland. So it's been wide and varied. We've worked in all sorts of industries. We've worked in med tech. We've worked in fintech. We've worked in, you know, in the ad game, you know, all of it, you know. Yeah. So I recognize that this is a little bit of a hypothetical, but what would happen if you started to be very successful, getting lots of customers, lots of business and that meant that Tapadu would grow significantly, you know, 30, 50, 100 people. Would I do it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so you would. <laughs> I think absolutely. And, and mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I've, I've certainly learned, and even at this modest size, is you have to realize where your weaknesses lie and hire good people for that. And I, I've, I've found that in the past, every time we've hired a non-programmer, it feels like the company takes a bit of a gear change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the examples I, I've talked about in the past and other places are things like, you know, in the early stages, I found trying to sell and deliver are, are two kind of opposing efforts, I guess. And you'd found that you could do one of them really well. So if you're selling well, great, your pipeline's filling up. But what you find is you've got customers ringing wondering where their projects are. And if you're delivering well, you can almost watch your pipeline drop away as you're not answering inbound inquiries and so on. Um, so early on in the business, we hired somebody in who took over all project delivery and let me go back to concentrating just on, on sales. So it's things like that. So absolutely, if, if things just absolutely took off, we'd continue to grow. I guess one thing I would say is that I'm interested in focus. I'm interested in being a mobile app development company. Mm-hmm. And w- what we do find is, um, I guess, that rules us out of certain projects, but it also is attractive to some of our clients when we say, look, we don't do anything else. We're not interested in embedded systems. We're not even really interested in web projects unless the web aspect to it is supporting a mobile app. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a case of wanting to just do what we like and do what we're good at and not trying to dilute our, our capabilities. Yeah. What would you do if growing meant not being the kind of company that you felt like you could work at anymore? That's a tough question. <laughs> I guess it's in, it, it's interesting to say, that here's what happens, right? You love being an iPhone app developer. You mm-hmm. produce a couple of apps. You take on a few clients. You find yourself too busy. You hire a couple of people. And after a while, you find, you know what? I'm the bottleneck here in the development. So you stop developing anyway. So. Right. 
I guess, you know, my day-to-day job isn't what I'd call my first love. I, I, I always describe it as if you scratch the surface of this CEO, you'll find a programmer. So I don't get the program very much anymore, but I still love my job. I still love what I do and I still love what our team produces. So I'm lucky in that way. But if it came up where my job was pushing spreadsheets every day, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> For me, I, you know, with ThoughtBot, I don't have a plan B. Like I am trying to create the kind of company that I could work at forever. And I don't have another motivation or another plan. Is it the same for you or different? I think that's an an interesting phrase because that's the phrase I've been using all along Mm -hmm. is that I wanted to build the kind of company I want to work at myself. Yeah. And I do feel we've achieved that. I think we've got a great a great team and a great atmosphere and we're all interested in the same stuff. Everyone here is in it for the love of developing apps. Mm-hmm. So no, there is not. There certainly isn't a plan B. Um, I guess when you're running a company, you do allow yourself to dream every now and then. Decide well, what's success, right? right. Is a success that you retire and you you know you hand the keys to your children and they continue running it, or is success that you get taken out by a bigger company? You know, I've I've entertained both of those ideas. Yeah. Let's just say, yeah. But I don't have a specific. I mean, it, it started life saying I've too much work on. Let me take on more. You know. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's certainly not a plan B. This is this is the best job I've ever done. This is my favorite job I've ever done. Uh, I'm still liking it day to day. So I think that's a starting point. Yeah. Right. I read a book recently though that made the point and underscored it for me, which is even if you're not planning on exiting one way or another you will exit even if it's feet first uh, yeah and so that you know we we've been in business for 15 years and and that really struck home with me is okay we need to start thinking about what the next 15 years looks like and you know you never know what's going to happen and um even if i never plan on leaving you never know what's going to happen like <laughs> So I've done a lot of thinking and planning over the last six months or a year to think about how do I make the company work well and, and survive me, even if the worst were to happen. Is that anything that you've given thought to? It is, I guess. I, I think when you start a services company, you, you do in the back of your mind hope at some point along the way, you'll come across a product idea, or maybe something you implement for mording one client. Yeah. And then you spin that out into into product. Uh, I have to say that hasn't happened to us to date. And I think to some extent that may be because we've worked in such varied industries. I would love to have a product idea. I don't claim to be an ideas person, to be quite honest with you. But yeah, I, I, I would love to. But I think your point is well made. I mean, we do hear, for example, of people talking about app fatigue. Now, I, I think that's probably a buzzword made up by a web agency, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but let, let's face it. I mean, mobile apps, yeah, they're going to be here for a while, but who knows what their next best thing is. And what we've done, I suppose, to... Uh, when we plan and think about that is we've taken some of our more longer term clients because we've got a number of clients that we're like an appointed app agency for and we would use some of our spare time to do other technical stuff and show it to them so for example we work with a utility company like a large utility company and we've done some demo stuff with them using uh, google home Mm -hmm. now it's a bit ahead of their time 
but it's useful for them to be thinking about their future as well and not only thinking about their future but when they do start to consider it they go hey didn't Tapu do show us something like that six months ago or a year ago or whatever it happened to be mm-hmm. now to some extent i know i'm I, i'm kind of contradicting my my earlier point about having a focus but it's all well and good having a focus provided that focus stays in vogue right <laughs> all right so if in the future and, and we don't see signs of it yet but if in the future people say no we don't want to do any more apps anymore um obviously we'd still like to be around working and doing some good work with our customers we happen to have a similar situation in that we were the first consulting company in the world to switch to ruby on rails back in 2005 and so we were very early on with that and had a lot of advantage because of it but the way I've always thought about it and the way I've encouraged the team to think about it is that, remember, we didn't choose that because we thought it was a good business decision. We chose it because it was what we liked to do as developers and designers and believed that it could help us create the kinds of products we wanted to create. And so despite our focus or despite that that's where the majority of our business is, we'd be doing ourselves a disservice if we weren't also looking for the next thing that we would love to do as designers and developers and be open to the idea while we're focused that that might come along. I think, I think that's an interesting challenge, um, uh, particularly when you've picked a technology like that. I, I would think of you know choosing a language or a framework is a little lower level, right? So mm-hmm. what I mean is you, you've pinned yourself to a framework, we've pinned ourselves to an area of an industry. Right. Um, it'd be like us saying, you know, we're Objective-C programmers or whatever. But I, I see the point. But I, I think the challenge that faces uh, both of us in, in that scenario is we get comfortable and we get to like what we do. And it doesn't necessarily encourage you to look outside of that. Right. And like, for example, for years, we've had people coming to us saying, do you use any cross-platform toolkits? But personally, I've yet to see an app that I really, really like from a cross-platform toolkit. So we've always turned away those projects unless it was like an existing customer who said, look, we need help with a project. Mm-hmm. And, and we've, we've, we've got our hands dirty with those sort of things. What I mean by that is focusing on one technology is it can be both a strength and a weakness. Mm-hmm. You know, we have not looked really seriously at, say, for example, Cordova, because when we looked at it in the early days, we really, really didn't like it. I've yet to see something I do like, but right. there are other technologies coming on stream. There's there's React Native and so on. Mm-hmm. And I guess what we have to do is every six months or maybe every 12 months, reevaluate, take a look and, and take a, a cold, hard look and say to yourself, do we want to go down this road? And inevitably the answer tends to be no, but someday it might have to be a yes. Mm-hmm. What are some other ways? You mentioned um, every time you've brought on a non-programmer, you feel like you've leveled up. What are some of the other ways that the company has changed? Now you've been almost 10 years, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So what are some of the other ways that you've found the company has changed? I guess generally it's about it, it's about starting to do things in a grown-up fashion. And we often do talk to our clients and say, by the way, we have a few grown-ups in the building. And, and some customers really like that. I'm in my mid-40s. You know, I, I've, I've been writing software a, a long time. And sometimes I'm up against three 25-year-olds who started an app development business who, who by the way, can produce lovely-looking apps. 
but they may not have the experience to take seriously things like release procedures uh-huh. or testing procedures and so on. So I guess one of one of the things we've done is we've got reasonably serious about that. We do have very good tooling around continuous integration, but also some tooling we've added ourselves in terms of things like promoting bills to clients. Because you might find with, say, a corporate client, you've given them a build, uh, they've gone off and done user acceptance testing, they've spent three or four weeks doing it. In the meantime, uh, you know, your eager developers have found a couple of bugs, they have fixed them and merged them into the source tree or whatever. But the client doesn't want that. They want the build that they've put through three weeks of acceptance mm-hmm. testing. So we've got some tooling we've built around promoting builds and so on. While our CI system will continue to build and deploy onto web servers and so on, the one that the customer gets to see is actually managed somewhat manually. We've some tool around it. In fact, we've got an app to do it. We've got we've got Slack commands to do it and sort that sort of stuff. So we've got quite serious about how we deliver to clients. Um, and then we've also worked with some industries that I would say the younger books, if you like, would, would struggle with the extra overhead of regulation. So we've done some work in med tech and we've done some work in pharma. You know, we've gone on training courses that tell us, you know, how we've to write particular documents and they're tedious and difficult. But, you know, you can't play in those industries unless you're willing to do that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that's the other areas we've, we've done. It's like, like I say, we do app development, but we do it in a, in a kind of a grown up fashion. Mm-hmm. How intentional do you feel that was when you were starting versus did you just see that opportunity come up? I would say some of it is organic. Um, Some of it was out of uh, customer demand. Mm -hmm. And then some of it would have been out of having, uh, I guess, some very diligent engineers. So, you know, our, our early CI stuff where, you know, our engineers saying, no, let's not build on our own devices. Let's get ourselves a build server, you know. And, and, and I guess to their credit, that was pushed from the team, not from myself. And then if you like the extra tooling we built over time, um, we're either in response to a customer saying, this is how we would like to have our software given to us. I guess a less experienced team would say, no, this is how we do it. Whereas we go, okay, tell us what you want and we'll see what we can come back to you with. So I think... Some of it, like I say, was customer demand. And then some of it is just, you know, you're approached by an industry like pharma or like med tech. There's only one way to play in those industries. You know, they, mm-hmm. they're not interested in how you do stuff. They tell you how it has to be done. It's do it or you're not or you're just not at the races. It's that mm-hmm. simple. Any other ways in which the company has changed over the last almost decade? I, I guess, I mean, a lot of stuff has been around, uh, like I say, different types of non-programmers being added. I mean, the very first one that we noticed was when, you know, in the early days, we were designing the stuff ourselves. and It's just Fisher-Price apps <laughs> is what I call them. Yeah, no, they, they look like they were designed by developers. So we brought in a designer quite early. We brought in a second designer along the way as well who has some very good skills around illustration and icon design and so on. We brought in dedicated QA um, in fact, our most recent hire now is marketing. So actually someone who can help us build and, and find our market because for years we've relied on word of mouth, referrals, the phone ringing, that sort of stuff. And now we, we realize, well, you know what? 
when you get to a certain size, you can't just rely on that. You actually have to go out and make the market and find the market for you. And also, by the way, with a fuller pipeline, you get to choose your better projects, right. you know, and you don't just choose, you know, whoever's coming in the door, you choose the ones you think are most likely to be successful or ones that are going to be most referenceable. You know, the best project isn't necessarily the one that's going to be highest in the charts. Mm-hmm. It might be a stepping stone to your next big project. So I guess the maturity is a kind of far more around being a business than technology, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So that's some of the ways in which the company has changed. How have you changed? Whew. Uh, my hair is a lot greater. <laughs> um, that's that's a, a very interesting kind of a curveball. I guess, like I say, I was a programmer yeah. up to maybe, say, seven years ago. Um, in fact, every now and then, you know, I hear this conversation going on between a couple of developers about how something is difficult, and I kind of shout across the room, give it to me, I'll show you how it's done. And I go off and I half-ass it and, uh, you know, leave them to finish it, and they, they call it boss coding. Um, right. I, I don't I don't think they mean it in a positive way, right? So, um, in fact, they often will smirk at me and say, why don't you boss code this? Uh, <laughs> but how have I changed? Well, I mean, you know, I started the business with, a, with quite a young family. My youngest child is now, oh, he's coming up on 12. So, the family's grown. The food is still on the table. We're still... <laughs> Which, which is all good. Yeah, I guess I've become a sales guy, I guess. Yeah. And I think this is probably an interesting transition that lots of developers struggle to make. So I even notice with some of the team, not all of them, but with some of the team, if you say, uh, we might get you to come out and come to this client meeting with us, you know, you can see the discomfort in them. They just don't particularly want to be customer facing. And I'm I'm not talking about, you know, stereotypical deep introversion or anything like that. It's just that the all the whole selling end of it doesn't yeah. come nece- necessarily easy to a developer. And I think for me, necessity's a great inventor. So for the first couple of times I was just taking on people's projects. But then we got to a stage where we were saying, you know, I have to go out and find these projects. I have to go win them. It's not throwing them a figure and saying, what do you think? Let's do it. You actually have to sell to the customer. I guess to be quite honest, I feel I'm still learning at that. But there's no discomfort there anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't feel any fear of going to meet new people to try and sell to them. And I guess one of the big differences that I was always kind of aware of between, if you like, developers and salespeople is developers think in absolutes. They think in rights or wrongs, in yeses or noes, in ones and zeros. And salespeople have to find the gray between the black and white. Right. I mean, they have to say, well, I know my solution can do this. I know the customer wants something close to it, but not exactly right. And there may be a common ground. Whereas a programmer might think, no, that's not going to work. A salesperson has to try and help the customer find that common ground. And often I think in my youth as a developer, I used to think sales guys were just liars, (laughs) for want of a better way to put it, right? Not quite that bad, but, you know, people who were economical with the truth. You know, as I've found myself having to do that role, it's not about being economical with the truth. It's about not dealing in those absolutes. Right. Yeah, I feel like I had a realization a little while ago 
and I don't know that I've really resolved it, which is one of the things that allowed me to do that, I feel, was the fact that I had to as the owner. And not only did I have to, I was put in a position where if we were going to stay in business, I was going to have to find the compromise or the gray area, as you put it, which I really like. But I had the authority and felt completely empowered to be able to do that. Whereas I'm not sure that other team members would feel that they could make that compromise that needed to be made on the behalf of the rest of the company. I think you're right in that. And I I do think there's something quite empowering in the fact that the book does stop with you when you run the company. So it does mean that when you sit down to make decisions, even the hard ones, you have to be willing to take the consequences of those Mm -hmm. decisions. And I think that means that you start to rely on your gut a lot. So, you know, I have found in situations where I was working my way through a sales process with a potential customer and saying to myself, hold on, this deal doesn't feel right or this project doesn't feel right. And having to be very honest and go back to the customer and go, you know something? I'm sorry, I don't want to, I don't want to take on this project. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't always do it that blatantly. You might say, we just have enough time to take on your project. We're too busy right now. But I do think that, that you do have to be really, you know, really trust your gut in those instances. Mm-hmm. So I guess if you go back to the question of how have I changed, I, I think I've learned from mistakes. Frankly, I mean, I I don't think you learn from getting things right. I think when you take on a project and your gut feeling tells you it's not going to be good and six months later you're saying, I wish I never took on that project. You learn from that. And then the next time you feel that feeling, you go, hang on. I know what's going on here. That feeling reminds me of something. I'm going to turn down this project or Mm. whatever. Do you have a lot of stress from being responsible for the lives of 15 people, the livelihoods of 15 people? In truth, I think yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, running a software services company means you always have a problem. You always have either too much on or too little on. It often means that there are some conversations waiting in the wings that you need to happen, that need that you need to have, and that itself can lead to stress. So do I have sleepless nights? Once a quarter, maybe, there's a night there where I just, you know, there's something on my mind and I can't get through it. It's not for everyone. I think that's the the point about running a a business. It isn't for everyone. And all those people who sit there and and think, I could do that, it's really easy. Well, they don't get to see that side of it, you know. But I do some stuff to try and alleviate the stress. I have long since stopped doing the 60-hour weeks or 70-hour weeks. I do try to get downtime at the weekend. You know, I get out with kids, they play sports and so on, and I go to see all their games. I talk things out, you know. I, I, I find that I would have some competitors, even in the same industry, where every now and then we'll meet over a cup of coffee and we'll just have a bit of a moan about something that's on our mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might be, you know, there's a customer who's late paying and he's driving me mad and I've called him five times and the guy isn't answering me. And your competitor across the table goes, yeah, I've got one of them as well. And then you feel, okay, I'm not the only idiot with these problems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so I find those things are all very good to alleviate the stress, but it's stressful at times. Yeah. 
So you've obviously worked and thought about similar worked across many, many industries. We don't really focus on any one particular industry. It seems like Tapadu, you do the same things. But is there one where you think that there's an opportunity now for you or that you're particularly interested in or that you're particularly proud of, excited about? Yeah, I guess, like, like I said, you know, we've always hoped we'd find ourselves a product, but that hasn't really happened. But one area that we've done a lot of work in uh, that we've really enjoyed actually is in the medtech space. So we, we've two apps in the store at the moment for a client called Slendertone, which is a, a Bluetooth enabled app that controls a muscle toning device. And definitionally, that is a medical device. And in fact, because the app uh, controls the medical device, the app itself is classed as a medical device which means that our work has been passed as a medical device by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Now, the amount of effort that goes into that is take a typical app project and, and multiply it by a number, you know, multiply it by five or six, maybe um, at least four anyway. And what it requires is a lot of extra documentation up front in terms of what you are going to build. You have to design it before you build it. You have to, within your code, refer to what part of your design you are implementing. You have to do formalized testing and so on. And you have to warrant that you have passed your tests. So there's there's some pretty onerous extra work involved. I guess the upside of that is we're trained in that. We have capability in that. So I guess the med tech, connected med tech space, you know, diagnostic equipment, that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. I think that's that's the area we found very interesting, I guess. So what are you doing to try to get more clients like that? Um, I guess that's part of the reason why we've hired in a marketing person. Mm-hmm. You know, we're actively looking. As, as it turns out, Ireland is a large exporter of med tech in fact we hit well above our well above our weight i think we're about the eighth or ninth largest exporter of med tech in the world the biggest industry we've, we've looked into this the biggest med tech producer is of course the us but you know you we've seen lots of connected health startups out there and lots of in fact established companies doing connected health it's that kind of stuff the yeah. the withings and the fitbits and all that sort of stuff of this world mm-hmm when you first did that first project where you were going to go through FDA approval, did you know what was involved and who was telling you what was involved? So the, the client came to us. Um, mm-hmm. They are a med tech supplier of being, being going around since the 1950s. In, in fact, they've got this amazing photograph in their office of Muhammad Ali using one of their devices. And it wasn't one they chipped him. It was he had bought his own and was using it. And I think they've also a picture of Franz Beckenbauer, who would be a famous German soccer player, using it as well. So they were knocking around a long time, and they came to us. It was their first connected project, but they knew they knew the FDA process very well. They would have had very good people in the embedded development side of things, um, but the app world was new to them. And they came to us, and, and to be fair, they did say, look, this work is going to be much more onerous. We are going to train you. But of course, they, they were willing to pay for all that. So, you know, we were happy to take it on. Yeah. And, you know, we, we're, we're really proud of it. I mean, it passed its FDA approval first time. We, and it went through a full audit. As it turned out, they hadn't been audited in a few years. So they decided with this new product, they did a full audit. And the full audit goes right into their supply chain, the whole thing and all our software documentation and so on. So they told us what we were getting ourselves in for. It was probably even more onerous than we expected. But, you know, 
it was never contentious. It was always mm-hmm. just a you know an ongoing process that was a bit like wading through treacle, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> to mm-hmm. some extent. But the end results spoke for themselves. They were very, very good. One of the things that we found has worked well for us from a marketing perspective when we identify an area that we would like more leads in is to create a specific landing page on our website that talks about our experience with that thing. And it's mostly for SEO, but it turns out it if you do a little bit of research and I, you know, if you if you're not doing this already, I think the marketing person will be able to help is see how do we talk about this so that people will find it? And then what kind of information do we put on here so that people will reach out to us once they read this page? You know, this is exactly the lecture I was given <laughs> from my new marketing person. And to be fair, I mean, the thing is, we, we've we've had an SEO agency just looking after AdWords and mm-hmm. so on. And they kept coming to me and saying, look, you need to do landing pages. And I guess, you know, I, I haven't really done a good job of that hands up. But, you know, I sat down with our marketing person just last week and she said, here's what needs to happen with the website. And she talked about all the new landing pages and she talked about speaking to people in their in their own language and i guess you know i i've got to hold my hands up here as a former developer i th- i tend to think about how things are going to be done or yeah. how things will work as opposed to i guess you know salesmen are supposed to sell benefits over features right. but us, us developers think exactly. in terms of features you know so i'm hopeful that we uh you know we're going to make some serious changes to the website in the coming weeks and like you say try to appeal to the people in their in their own language. Yeah, it's worked for us and we have a long way to go too because we have the same same problem. And even, you know, there are big sections of the website where we just talk in great detail about how we do things from a development and design perspective. And it's just really, it's full of, now that I see the problem, how full of jargon it is, you know, how, how it's not targeted at the people who actually hire us at all um, in terms of what they care about. I realize how much work we have to do, but even just the la- the landing pages have been really successful for us. So, you know, I I got a taste of this just about a week ago, where somebody sent me an email from a recruitment consulting company, and we get approaches from recruitment consultants all the time, and we also get approaches from outsourcing companies all the time. But this mail came in. Um, it was a guy who just moved, so I think he might have had my address from a previous encounter or whatever. But the mail opened up and said. Hi, I'm calling from Company X. And the next paragraph said, Company X is great because mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Then the next paragraph began, At Company X, we have an attitude towards blah, blah, blah. And then his fourth paragraph was about Company X. And the very last paragraph said, I'll follow up with a call next week. And here's a PowerPoint presentation about Company X. And it's like, not at one stage in that that he appealed to me. He told me mm-hmm. how great he was. And I just replied and said, Don't follow up with a phone call. I don't want to hear from you. Thanks. And I, I was going to go into a, a bit of a rant and tell him why, but I just thought, no, I, I, that's going to just come across as me being on a high horse. So mm-hmm. I just said, no, thanks. I don't want to hear from you. But it kind of really made me realize what it's like to be on the other side of that table. Yeah. You know, and, and I remember years ago being at an event and they were talking about networking and they were saying, you know, always start to networking by listening because who wants to walk in and start, well, wait, I'll tell you how great I am. Yeah, you know, so it doesn't help, and this is exactly what these, uh, what this mail that came into me last week was about. So, yeah, I think we've worked to do on that, but I, I'm I'm confident we can do it, and I'm I'm quite optimistic on it. In fact, 
Well, I wish you the best of luck, Dermot. If people want to find out more about Tapadu or uh, follow you and get in touch with you, where can they do that? So the website's tapadoo.com, T-A-P-A-D-O-O.com. Me personally, I tweet, although less than I used to, but I tweet at DermDaily, D-E-R-M-D-A-L-Y. And Tapadoo has a Twitter account, at Tapadoo. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed this episode, and I really hope you did, do me a favor and tell a friend about it. It really helps. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.